You know, during the COVID era, I think we've seen firsthand really what drives headlines. As we've seen kind of the trend shift with uh, the, the outbreak that took place, the, the things that really drive headlines over the past year and a half, I think would, what would top the list if we made a list is fear. That fear drives headlines and that, that fear is a powerful tool that's been used to grab our attention. And it's funny, even as I was sitting down to write an introduction for this week and writing this out, my phone chimed with a little news update. And the headline was that uh, researchers now fear that COVID will actually have a long-term effect uh, and cause damage in areas of dementia and other uh, brain uh, challenges as people get older. Uh, the headline was, was all of a sudden instilling fear back in people about things that we don't know and literally can't know yet. But as I read the article because it worked. Um, in the end, it, it was like researchers have no way of actually knowing, but it could, like anything else could, actually affect our long-term health and, and actually cause dementia. But we have no way of knowing and won't for years and years and years. If we looked at a list of what would drive headlines, fear is what's headed that list, but then we could add to it, well, political scandal definitely drives, uh, drives headlines and interest in people. We, we could throw in a conspiracy theory there, and that would round out our list of the last year and a half. But if we added to those things, to fear, political scandal, conspiracy theories, if we threw in some family drama and then an intoxicated dance party, we'd actually have the story that we find ourselves looking at this morning in scripture. In Mark chapter 6, the story that we'll read includes all of those things. There's fear involved, there's a political scandal, there's a conspiracy theory at work, there's even family drama, and then this out-of-control intoxicated dance party. Listen, because our story is full of all of those components, then we could assume that by the end of the day, as, as these events came to a close, that word is spread throughout the palace. We could assume that by morning, it would have been heard, this story would have been heard all throughout the city. We could assume very safely that within a day or two, that word would have spread and echoed from east of the Jordan, up the, the Jordan, around the region of the Galilee, that even those who were familiar with Jesus, even his own disciples, would have begun to hear the echoes of this terrible tale of what takes place. In fact, this is such a notorious and, and infamous, notable story that the famous first century historian Josephus, Flavius Josephus, actually writes about it in great detail. He even, as a secular historian, took great interest in this moment. And so why don't you read with me Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. Now, when King Herod heard of him, of Jesus, for his name had become well known, and he said, Herod says, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others spoke up and said, it's Elijah, and others said, it's the prophet, or one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, no, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. Now, up until this part, where we're finding this story is that Jesus is, we've, we've been told by Mark's biography in the life of Jesus, that Jesus is out on uh, the charge. He's out teaching from village to village. And he was so moved with compassion, Matthew tells us, by what he saw, these broken people and their broken lives as he went out from village to village, that he pulls the guys back together and sends them out with authority. It's the story we looked at last time. He sends them out as apostles. 
Remember, because he was so moved with compassion for the brokenness that he saw in the world. So in order to not just spread his message, but in order to expand his kingdom and bring more people into the kingdom, he sent those guys out. People weren't just hearing the claim that that Jesus' kingdom had arrived. No, when the guys arrived in their villages, they were seeing the proof of that claim when all of a sudden they were experiencing the king's power and his deliverance at work in their lives. Miracles were happening and people... People's lives are being changed. And then our story tells us that news of that, of Jesus' fame spreading throughout the region, reaches into the palace itself. Herod himself is now convinced that something miraculous is happening. In fact, something otherworldly. Herod's sense of wonder, though, seems to be laced with some fear, not just regarding the fact that he's losing his grip on his people, but a real fear that reveals some serious guilt that he carries for taking the life of an innocent man, for taking the life of a righteous man, for taking the life of John the Baptist. Heaven's, or Herod's opinion, excuse me, Herod's opinion is kind of shared with us here where you start to realize from what he's saying and as others are giving him other, exclu- or other excuses of who this might be that's doing these miracles and he just keeps going back to the fact that it's John the Baptist. And you realize there's a fear there that I've killed a righteous man and he's back at it. He couldn't be taken down. He's back to haunt me. He's back to have his revenge. And he's going to strip away my power over my people. There's a flashback then that happens that Mark includes here to explain how this all went down. How did John lose his life? And so if you look, beginning in verse 17, here's the story. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. This is his wife. His brother Philip's wife, which makes it even more confusing, who he had married. Because John had said to Herod, why did he arrest him? Why did he imprison him? He had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, Herodias, this is the wife, held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced for them and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, ask for the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded that his head be brought. And he went and beheaded John in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl then gave it to her mother. Here's the little postscript. When his disciples, the disciples of John, heard of it, they came and took his corpse and laid it in a tomb. The story is an odd one for sure. 
And even it's a bit confusing as to why it's just seemingly thrown into the middle of the narrative of Mark's gospel the way that it is. I mean, in the narrative so far, things are moving forward. Thanks to the disciples, their faith and their obedience to Jesus and going out. And things are looking really good for Jesus and the arrival of his kingdom. Word is spreading quickly, but then all of a sudden comes this gut, this gut punch. Where John the Baptist, whom the prophets had foretold, remembered the cousin of Jesus, an ally of the cause, has been senselessly murdered and then mutilated. So why does this story find itself where it does in Mark's biography of the life of Jesus? Well, the first reason is very clear. It's it's there because it happened. And your Bible will record not just the highs, but the lows also, not just the highs and lows of what the world will do, a godless world, but the highs and lows even of what God's own men will do. I love that the Bible will show us even the flaws of its key characters to show their humanity and to show the grace and love and patience of God again and again. So the main reason it's there is because it happened. But I want you to think this through. Why does it find itself in Mark's biography of the life of Jesus? Well, first and foremost, I'm going to give you three things in We'll work our way through it. The first reason is that it's there to show us, number one, the impact of the mission of Jesus' kingdom. Number one, it's there to show us the impact of the mission of Jesus' kingdom. The second thing it shows us, though, is the connection between mission and martyrdom in Jesus' kingdom. It's the connection between mission and martyrdom in Jesus' kingdom. But there's a third thing. You see, if those two things are true, that that his kingdom will always be expanding and have an impact, but that there's a connection between mission and martyrdom inside his kingdom calling, if that's true, then the other thing it shows us is the danger of judging Jesus' love for us by our circumstances. The third thing would be the danger of judging Jesus' love for us by our circumstances. So why does it find itself there first and foremost? Here's where we go. The impact, it's showing us the impact of the mission of Jesus' kingdom. It's remarkable when you think about it that Jesus, just this blue-collar carpenter's son from this insignificant village of Nazareth, remember we talked about it a few weeks ago, that has a population of maybe 150 to 200 people, has all of a sudden emerged out of obscurity and into such prominence that the governing authorities are up at night thinking about him, worrying about him. It's shocking. Mark tells you that Jesus' story, his fame, has reached all the way as far as the palace itself. And in telling the story, he mentions how perplexed people were as to who Jesus really was and how he was accomplishing the things that he did. Is he just some prophet or is he a reincarnation of John the Baptist? Did he somehow emerge from the grave and now he's out with a vengeance? Who is this guy? And that's when Mark hits rewind in order to fill you in on all that happened. Now, remember, Mark's gospel technically is the gospel of Peter, because this is written from Peter's firsthand eyewitness accounts. Peter would later in the book of Acts travel with a young guy named John Mark, who would then write out the stories that he's hearing Peter tell again and again. So think for a moment about what it was like that first moment when Peter brought up this story. When Peter first sat down with Mark and began to tell him about the day that Jesus and his disciples, Peter being one of them, first heard about John the Baptist being murdered and mutilated. In fact, the Gospels tell us that some of John the Baptist's disciples left him to follow Jesus. 
So some who were present there when the the disciples heard as the story echoed up into the Galilee, as they heard this story, some of John's closest friends, people who had followed him even for years, were present in that moment to be heartbroken and to grieve. As Peter relived that moment as he sat with John, we wonder, was there a really somber tone as he sat down? Was it just a hushed voice? Was there this long deep breath and just a long empty stare for Peter no doubt this is a difficult story to tell it's a respected man a faithful man whom the prophets had foretold would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to make way for the king what an honor and an honorable man one that Jesus would refer to as the greatest of all those born among women up until this day and Peter begins then to tell John Mark about the day when he would lose his life for something so ridiculous and so mindless. It's wild when you think that when Peter started this story, he just says it all started at a birthday party. Like, what a mess. Birthday parties were these pagan, gnarly drinking parties that historians tell us usually included some sketchy women and very sketchy things with those sketchy women. This was not cake and and party favors and pinatas. No, the the ancient times, the way they celebrated birthdays was super messy. And in this party, there's a girl that's brought in to perform, and you probably caught it as, as you're hearing the story being read. It's that it's Herod's stepdaughter, that she comes in and dances for everybody, and it says that he and others were pleased. It's this creepy, weird, weird, weird scene. And if this was made into a movie, most of us, I would even say all of us, would feel morally obligated just to to say, no thanks, I'm going to pass on that one, to the invite to go and see it, because it was such a messy, broken scene. And to make matters worse, Greek linguists will point to the way that it's worded here, that this girl came and danced and say that it's indicating to you the way the Greek language is structured, that it's speaking of a preteen. This is a young girl that's dragged in front of these men. This is twisted and broken. Herod's family tree, I've heard it said this way, that it's more messy than a Thanksgiving family dinner in West Virginia. (laughs) Now, I didn't say that. I've just heard someone else say it. This guy, Herod, who's present here, his dad was Herod the Great, who we know is the guy who tried to kill all the babies in Jesus' birth announcement in his early story. Historians then tell us that that this guy, Herod the Great, was an incredible architect and builder who built fortresses and palaces all throughout the region. In fact, they also tell us that he was an incredibly paranoid individual, and one of the illustrations of that paranoia was the fact that he would build fortresses out in the desert where he would rarely, if ever, the, the fortress of Masada is a place that they don't even believe he ever went to. But years were spent developing it and building it as a fortress and a hideaway for him. He was paranoid not just in his building projects, but paranoid even in the fact that he had 10 wives, but he slowly believed that those wives were turning on him, and he took the the life of the, the wife that historians say he loved the most because his sister got in his ear and convinced him that she no longer loved him, and so he killed her. 
Uh, from those ten women, he had ten sons. Three of them he hunts down and murders because he's so paranoid that they're going to make a run at his throne. When he died, there was an order that all of those who were leading individuals within his parliament and government, that they would be brought together inside a large gathering and that they would all be murdered also so that he could control, even after his death, the way that things would play out. Herod the Great, you could say it this way, was an all-around happy-go-lucky kind of guy, really light-hearted individual. Emperor Augustus mockingly famously said about him that it's safer to be his pig than to be one of his sons because of how, how neurotic and paranoid and awful this guy really was. Herod the Great, his sister, remember who I just told you convinced him to kill his wife, her name was uh, Salome, and Salome had a daughter named Bernice, historians tell us. Bernice then marries one of Herod's ten sons, who is actually her cousin, so this is where it starts to get messy very quickly. And then they had a daughter, the two cousins have a daughter named Herodias. That's who you just met in our story, the one who wants John the Baptist dead. Now Herodias decides she's going to reach up in the family tree and she marries one of her uncles. And they have a daughter, the young girl who's seen here dancing. Now Herod Philip uh, had a visitor come to be with them Historians tell us that his brother Herod Antipas, the guy we're finding in this story, sorry, this is getting so convoluted, and this is how broken it was, but his brother Herod Antipas comes, stays with him to visit. Herod Antipas is over the region of Galilee. He's the guy in this story. He goes towards Rome, stays with his brother. Uh, Historians say he falls in love with his wife. His wife is this woman, Herodias. He convinces her, leave your husband, come be with me. She agrees, I'll leave him, but first you need to bag your first wife. He breaks off his marriage with his first wife before he can. Rumor gets back to her. She leaves and flees back to a neighboring country because she's the daughter. She's a princess of the king of a neighboring community who then is so incensed by the fact that his family has been so disrespected that it starts a war. And it starts religious protests in the land. Do you understand how broken and messy and divided this whole scene is? Herodias, she's saying, I'm not going to even run away with my replacement Husband, because I have such high moral standards that first you have to bag your first wife in order for me to leave my husband and then to marry another one of my uncles to move in with him. The whole thing is an absolute mess. And historians tell us that Herod's army is defeated in that battle trying to defend themselves from the, the frustrated princess and her dad who come and attack them. And that the Roman government themselves ends up having to send another army to be there to protect them. Josephus writes about all of this and gives us all the gory details of all the brokenness in the drama inside the Herod's family. And here's what he says. He says, now some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God and that very justly as a punishment for what he did against John that was called the baptizer for Herod slew him. Again, in another place, he wrote it this way. He said that the defeat there on the battlefield was a mark of God's displeasure with him for the death of John. Josephus will even identify the palace that all of this scene is taking place in as being east of the Dead Sea. It's a place that archaeologists have found and excavated. And there's two large dining halls. In one of those two large dining halls, we know that that's where this whole thing went down. Now, Herod, this guy, he's basically a governor over the land. He, after Herod the Great dies, his, his land that he's overseeing, that region is divided to four of his sons. They're known as tetrarchs. Uh, tetra, it's, it's four parts 
the ark to be over top of. They're ruling over these four different quadrants. And he wanted so badly, this guy did, historians tell us, to have the title of king. In fact, his wife, the lovely woman who we've already met, wanted it even more for him. This is what's interesting is that Mark chooses here to refer to him as a king, as King Herod. And it's pretty comical because it seems intentionally ironic. You see, Herod Antipas, this guy, he wanted so badly to be known as king that his wife pushes him in the future after this story, but before Mark's audience is reading about it, because this is distributed in the 60s AD, his wife pushes him to go to Rome to demand that he be called Herod the king, because one of his brothers was given that title, and when he went there, it all backfired on him, and he's banished to live in isolation and stripped of his power because of his pushiness. And so for Mark here, after the fact, to use the title of King Herod and to be writing these people after his banishment, after he's been humiliated, was really to poke fun at the king who would die without a kingdom in isolation. Now, Mark's doing that for a reason. I think he's doing it because he's trying to point out to first century readers who are dying because of their faith in Jesus, who are oppressed under governing authorities. He's trying to point out to them that the world's power structure is broken and easily toppled, that it won't last forever. And this first century audience that's losing their lives to the world's destructive power, to the Roman Empire, they're having to stop for a moment and remember that this is not The only that there has been a long line of people who have opposed the work of God, but they come and go. But God's work will stand forever. Think of this. Mark scornfully mocks the the royal pretensions that Herod has. And the irony here is that the self-proclaimed king and his court are so rattled by the message of Jesus' kingdom. Herod's power would be stripped away, but Jesus would establish his own kingdom that would last forever. But he would establish it not with brute force, but with love. And it would be a kingdom that would never be stopped. Listen, why does this story find itself here? Well, it finds itself here because it's wanting to remind you of the impact of the mission of Jesus' kingdom. Now, it's, it's a fair question to ask. Why is John putting his neck out there, though, by calling them out like this? By pointing a finger at their immoral decisions, their broken relationships. Well, because Herod here is in an immoral relationship. That's why John's calling him out with his brother's wife, who is his niece, no less, which broke the biblical laws that were set in place by God, but also set a horrible example for the people he was in leadership over. Ultimately, though, John calls him out because his job was to prepare the way for the true king of Israel. And John is pointing out that this guy is just a false imposter of what we've all hoped for. Now, you can imagine a world where calling out a political figure as a false messiah that can captivate the hearts of many of God's people could get some people so incensed and angry that they come for blood or out for someone's head. That's exactly what's happening here. In our story, in fact, Herod and his wife didn't appreciate John publicly defying them and opposing them. So they decide to take John to shut him behind bars to lock him up and keep his mouth shut. And Herodias seems completely determined that what we need to do is just kill him where her husband shows a lot of trepidation. He's very conflicted about that. And, And so it seems like what they do is they have John do for them what many others in that day were doing. 
You see, back in that time, obviously, there was no evening television program for you to unwind to at the end of the day. You didn't just sit back with little stimulation and amusement and flick on a TV. Instead, the wealthy and influential back in this era were known to bring in philosophers of the day who would come in in the evening time to address them and share their view of the world, and that was their amusement for the evening. And it seems as though that's what Herod is doing with John here. That there's something that Herod finds so intriguing. And the same could not be said, though, about Herod's wife. In our story, she jumps at the first chance she has to get John's head on a platter. In fact, verse 23, there's an expression. I will give you, he promises, up to half my kingdom. It's really not to be taken literally. As we've discussed, he really didn't even have a kingdom. It's an expression that would be used that communicated, I'm prepared to reward you generously. Now, Mark and Josephus both tell this story of what plays out, but they they don't contradict each other. However, though, they do give two separate reasons why Herod yielded to this request, and both are true. Mark tells you that Herod's public oath drove him to comply and to give in and to allow John to be murdered. Josephus writes that it was Herod's fear of unrest and distrust with the nobles and the prestigious that applied the pressure so that he yielded to it and gave in and had John killed. It's this messy moment of time where he's in the valley of decision. Herod could not let the nobles see that he wouldn't uphold his word, nor could he allow them to assume that he had less of a stomach for violence than the little dancing girl that stood before them. So because of his oath, verse 26, and because of the nobles who sat in his presence, he yields and gives in. Listen, why is this story recorded for us? It shows us the impact of the mission of Jesus' kingdom, that it could not, that it cannot be stopped. But here's a second thing. It's included here because it shows the connection between mission and martyrdom in that kingdom. The executioner then begins the grim trip, walking towards the place where they kept this righteous man, John. John will soon suffer the anger of those who feel that their power is slipping away from them. And for me, I I felt silly this week when I stopped and just considered, what is it that they're really that incensed about? What is it that they're really putting their foot down about? What is it that really rattled them so much? When you think about it, it was what's happening to John here is happening because he spoke up about God's authority and opinion about sex and marriage. That was it. That's what rattled them so much. How dare you call us out publicly and say that what we are doing is wrong and unrighteous and that what God says is righteous matters. And my friends, things haven't changed. The Christian movement has always been countercultural. I'll say it again for 2,000 years. The authentic movement of followers of Jesus has always been and always will be countercultural. To speak up about God's authority and instruction for issues of sex and sexuality and sexual expression and marriage has always been and will always be taboo and risky. But having a culture and a government that doesn't embrace the church's value system actually puts us in some really great company, doesn't it? The company of the earliest followers of Jesus. Why does this story find itself here? Well, it finds itself here because of the connection that's being made between mission and martyrdom in Jesus' kingdom. The passage is something I've introduced you to this concept before that theologians refer to as a Mark and Sandwich. 
Remember the idea of the sandwich. You don't call a peanut butter and jelly sandwich a peanut butter and jelly sandwich because of the bread on the outside. You refer to the sandwich by the good stuff that's on the inside. The bread just houses it, but the flavor is found inside of it. It's a salami sandwich or a turkey sandwich because the flavor is packed into the centerpiece. The idea is that you'll best understand, you'll best experience and appreciate the outer two pieces by experiencing the flavor of that inner piece. Now, if this is the first time you're hearing this, this is a weird concept. But it's a writing style that was, that was used in this era that historians and Bible scholars point to and say, this is what Mark's doing. Think of the three layers to our sandwich here. Jesus has just sent out the 12, but skip ahead to verse 34. I should say probably verse 30. Skip ahead to verse 30. After this story, so he sends them out, all the messiness, the brokenness, the suffering of one, sends out the 12, the suffering of the one, and then the 12 returned. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And Jesus said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to take a break to eat. So push pause. The story of him sending out the 12 is left incomplete until the report is given on when they return. But intentionally, Mark places in between those two layers of that story, he places a story of one person's grave suffering. Why place them together? It's something that theologians point to, and I buy it, that, that Mark is wanting to communicate to every future reader that mission and martyrdom are connected. That he would send them on a mission, but that that mission could be incredibly costly. That discipleship, discipleship and death might go hand in hand. Jesus himself would later say, anyone who wants to follow me will have to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. A cross is a cruel instrument of torture. And Jesus was saying to those who follow him, he's telling them suffering and pain and adversity are coming if you make that choice. Listen, Mark's telling, in this story, he's telling us something. He's telling us that it, it's not just a reminder for future Christians, followers of Jesus, of the death of John the Baptist or the inseparable nature of mission and martyrdom, of discipleship and death. Mark is pointing ahead even further to another one who will suffer, another unjust death of an innocent man named Jesus. Jesus, who would ask no one to endure what he would not endure for us, who too would be unjustly put to death, not for his own deeds, but because of the world's brokenness, which is the reason that then I can view my own suffering through the lens of his great love and commitment to me because he'd do it for me. He'd suffer for me. Mark is, I would argue, looking even further than just across to future generations looking ahead to the little communities of Christians who'd received this letter, who too would face persecution and hardship for their choice to herald the message of Jesus the King rather than Herod or Caesar the King. They'd refuse to give up and to quit sharing that message. And because of their commitment to fulfill God's mission, they too would be martyred. And that's what's happening with his recipients. The ones who are first reading this letter in the 60s AD are being hunted down by the Romans, are being thrown to wild animals, are being dipped in tar and impaled and lit as candles and torches to line the streets and to line Nero's palace itself, Caesar Nero's palace. 
because of their commitment to being a disciple of Jesus, they would find themselves marching towards their deaths. For people who live in that reality, this story gives comfort. Gives comfort that they're not alone and that what they're doing, think about it. If you're that person who finds yourself in choosing to follow Jesus, that you feel that you're marching towards death itself, at some point you'd question, am I doing it wrong? Am I abandoned? I mean, did God leave me? Did I make a mistake? What did I do wrong? Why is this just getting worse? And why am I literally coming closer and closer to a hangman's noose or to a chopping block? The story would have comforted them to show them that they were in good company and that they weren't doing anything wrong. My friends, following Jesus is always better than any other option, but it's rarely easier than the other options. And all of us who believe in Jesus have been called to join his mission in the world. And that's not missions to a foreign land. Some people will do that, and that's great. No, all of us are called to God's mission right here. And for you who are younger, that's your school campus. For all of us, it's our neighborhood. It's, it's our grocery store. It's, it's our local coffee shop. It's, it's the people that you work with and do life with. It's all of us as followers of Jesus are called to be missionaries. And this might sound extreme to you, but I'd ask you to really give it some thought. If you're not living as a missionary where you're planted, then you're really not truly a follower of Jesus. Because that's what he's asking of all of us. And to live as a missionary, a person on mission today in America, it may not cost you your own death, but it may cost you the death of a friendship or the end of your run of popularity. It may cost you the ridicule of your family or some embarrassment from a skeptical and antagonistic coworker. But following Jesus, it's always the, the best option. It's just rarely the easiest. Following Jesus is going to cost all of us something. But imagine if you're reading this story even today in a place other than Southern California, other than San Diego County, other than the U.S. even. If you're reading this today as a disciple of Jesus in Egypt, where you're fearing for your life because of your choice to follow Jesus. Or you're in North Korea, where scattered reports tell us that people, when they're found out as being followers of Jesus, that they're taken, those Christians are, and put into prison work camps still today. Or you're in North Africa, where some time ago, Lindsay and I watched a documentary that was put out about a group of terrorists who took over a mall, and first-hand eyewitness reports said that they would run up to people and hold automatic weapons to them and say, are you Christians? And if they said yes, they'd shoot them and kill them. One of the people that was killed that day was a pregnant woman. What if you're reading this and you're sitting in a prison in Iran? What if you're in Libya facing a firing squad? What if you're in Iraq and Syria where hundreds of thousands of Christians, as much as it's estimated 87% of the Christian population in Iraq, have been forced to flee due to the civil war and the presence of militant groups such as the Islamic State. They're leaving because it's death if they stay. You may not know this, but there's more people that are killed for their faith today than any other era in human history. That's crazy. I read it on the Daily Telegraph. They said it this way, uh, quoting Todd Johnson. He's an expert in the World Christian Database. He's estimated that there were 100,000 new Christian martyrs each year between the year 2000 and 2010, many of them from the Sudan and Congo. The same man estimates that 45 million Christians perished in the 20th century. An Italian sociologist in that article claimed that a Christian is killed every five minutes. 
That means 18 will lose their lives in the time that we gather this morning to celebrate our Jesus, our King. Quoting directly from that guy, Todd Johnson, he's a professor of, the glo of global Christianity and mission at Gordon-Conwell University. He said it this way. He says, we estimate that more than 70 million Christians have been martyred over the last two millennia, more than half of which died in the 20th century. We also estimate that 1 million Christians were killed between 2001 and 2010, and about 900,000 were killed from 2011 to 2020. <laughs> Think about this. More Christians have been killed for their faith in the 20th century than have been martyred in the total history of Christianity. But so not our experience here that when we read this, we read it so different than someone who'd read about their mission and calling that they're commissioned by Jesus. But now they face great opposition and persecution. They go, what did I do wrong? And then John's story would have not just punched them in the gut like it does us. It would have comforted them in a way that it never could us. And then the end cap, that bottom layer of bread would be found of him greeting the apostles, telling them, you've done so well, come and rest. For so many who read this still today, they read this story and the welcome of Jesus to come and rest is because they've given their life and they enter eternity. And the embrace that they get is an eternal one. The passage is Mark's way of saying that no matter what you're up against, you're not alone. In fact, you're in good company. John and Jesus, his disciples, 11 of the 12, would be murdered for their faith. The early church even, even many of our peers today, many today, like Jesus and John, are facing unjust persecution and death. Listen, life isn't fair, but Jesus is good and heaven is coming. And when we're with him, everything will be made right again. There's no more sin, sickness, suffering, or death. We sing, it says, the song of Moses, that just and true or fair and right are all of your judgments. You may have noticed in verse 7, there's this weird little verbiage, the way that it's expressed, where it, it makes the comment that Jesus began to send them out two by two. It was the last time we were together we discussed this. But he began to send them out two by two. Scholars agree that the reason the sentence is structured so intentionally awkward and clunky, that it's not saying in the past tense he did send them out. No, he began the process of sending people out. The reason it's structured that way is intentional because it was communicating that Jesus was beginning something that he would continue to do and even still today does. That he's sending out his followers in the present tense, continuing to send out disciples. And he sent them out to speak and to serve. Those are the two things. And when they returned, they told him all that they had done and taught to speak and serve. It may not always be the easiest option. But my friends, it's the best option to live for Jesus. Why does this story find itself in the middle of Mark's biography of the life of Jesus? Well, it finds itself there to show us the impact of Jesus' kingdom. It shows us also the connection between mission and martyrdom inside the kingdom, that there's a cost to all of us, and some continue to pay the highest cost. But here's where we wrap up and land the plane. And that's that if those two things are true, then this story is here to show us the danger of judging Jesus' love for me by my circumstances. And if you haven't done so, you, you can. You can close your Bible. We'll wrap up and we're going to transition into communion in just a moment. 
Before we do, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't slow down just to consider John's perspective in this. We can talk as outsiders about what Mark is trying to tell an audience, but what about the one who's inside? He's inside a prison, and he hears the footsteps of an executioner coming his direction. We're not told what John says to the executioner who came and opened his cell and then explained what his orders were. But we do know from Luke and from Matthew a question that John had previously asked from his cell. They record that he pulled his disciples to him and that he sent them Jesus' direction with a question. We're told what that question was, and it seems to imply the confidence that Jesus' response instilled in John. In Luke 7 and in Matthew's gospel, you'll find it, where John says, go and ask him from his prison cell, are you the one or do we look for another? For some people, they read the story and they go, this is unbelievable. Like, John can't be asking him, asking Jesus this question for himself. He's John the Baptist. How could his faith waver? He must be asking it because his disciples, his disciples are wavering in their faith. And I would argue and say it doesn't imply that at all. It implies that John is the man who knows he's on death row. He knows his time is going to run out at some point. And so he sends word saying, Jesus, are you really the one or did I get it wrong? He's in prison and the world is moving on without him. And Jesus is healing and delivering other people while John remains in chains. And that doesn't add up. Jesus, his own flesh and blood, it's his cousin. Jesus, the one that he laid a foundation for so that he could arrive and do his ministry. John must have wondered, what did I do wrong? How did I deserve this? Where is the problem, the one that I believed in, the one that I believed to be able to fix all of this? Because something about this just isn't right. And so John sends word to Jesus. The one that he foretold would come after him with the power of God. The one he sends word to, the one that he baptized and saw the spirit of God descend upon him. And the voice of God, he heard it affirm him. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But now John's suffering. And it's as if all of that is gone from his memory. Because it doesn't add up. And he's got to know, did I even get this right? Was I right even in the first place? Are you really who I thought you were? Are you really God? Are you really good? Are you trustworthy? More is recorded about Jesus' response to John's question than John's question itself. Jesus' response was not anger to John's question. Neither did he mock or scoff at what seems like John's massive lapse of faith. Instead, Jesus in the story does two things. He told them, take word to John that the lame walk, the blind see, the mute speak, and the dead live. Jesus quotes from the prophets, tell him all the things the prophets foretold are happening and more. Because the prophets hadn't foretold that the dead would rise. Jesus is surpassing any expectation than anyone had ever had. And resurrection meant hope even in death. And that's where John found himself. The second thing Jesus did is he then publicly affirmed John. He referred to him in that moment as the greatest man who'd ever been born of a woman up until that point. He wasn't angry with him or even disappointed in him. And John seemingly was encouraged and reinvigorated because we're not told of any other question that needed an answer or any other response that needed to be given. You see, I don't know what John said in the hour of his execution, but I believe that John faced it with confidence that the one that had power over death loved him and would not abandon him. 
The hard thing is you and I can find ourselves shoulder to shoulder with John. The hard thing is that so many of us, we found ourselves in the dungeon of doubt. Our world, because it's so broken, and because the harsh reality and hardship and life has the ability to rattle each of us. And it can feel like we face things that look like, that feel like godless moments with fear and a, a sense of abandonment. And, and then we find ourselves deeply questioning, Jesus, are you really the one? Or have I been wrong this whole time? Have I been lying to myself? In these moments, I don't think God's face resembles the disappointment that we think he feels. I don't think he's angry with our humanity. John had to trust the eyewitness accounts that came back and told him all that they saw Jesus do in his life and his ministry. And his trust, it wasn't just in, in the trustworthiness of that report. His trust then was that Jesus was the one whom the prophets foretold would come to set the captives free from something greater than the bondage that he found himself in in that current moment. And there are moments for us where you and I have to have that kind of confidence and the truthfulness of the testimony of the eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And there are incredible reasons to trust this book, which leave us then with a deep sense of confidence in the love and the grace of God that's on display for us in the pages of Scripture. You see, here's the thing. I can't judge Jesus' love for me by my circumstances. <clears throat> I must instead view my circumstances through the trust and the lens of Jesus' love for me. Man, I wish I had no idea what these moments were like. I wish I'd never found myself in a place, the dungeon of doubt next to John, saying, did I get this wrong? Have I been lying to myself? Just overwhelmed by disappointment or crushed by unmet expectations, feeling so isolated because of my pain, but I've been there. Jesus met me there. Gethsemane has never meant so much to me. A place where not just John crumbled in a cell, but Jesus crumbled in that garden under the pressure, the weight of what was happening. And he looked at his friends and said, I might die of sorrow tonight before even making it to a cross. I've been there in those moments, so numb and overcome with hurt that, that I had no confidence left in myself that I'd ever feel myself again, that I'd ever feel back to normal, any, any form of normal again. I felt so devastated and angry that I wondered how I could trust again, especially trust the one I trusted most, and that was God. I've been in these moments. And many of you have too, but you've heard a father's gentle, loving voice saying, don't judge my love for you by those circumstances. View your circumstances through your trust in my love for you. A love that was demonstrated and proven on a cross. That's the point of the whole story. Is that we live under the shadow and reality of the cross. That the truth is that we are more wicked and broken or as wicked and broken as Herod himself in the story and Jesus is more righteous than John ever was or would be. We live under the shadow of the cross, which allows us then to not judge his love for us by our circumstances, 
but to learn to view our circumstances through our confidence and his love that was proven on a cross and that while we were still sinners, he suffered and died for us.